welcome everybody to another episode of the Small Council. Um, so tonight uh, is definitely something a bit different. We're going to be going over the hobby aspect of the game, uh, and you know, I guess this kind of is not exclusive to Ice and Fire, but uh, we'll be trying to mostly talk about in context with you know Ice and Fire minis, but. Um, you know, it might uh, dive into just, you know, general topic of anything hobby-wise. Uh, so tonight's episode was actually suggested uh, on our Discord by uh, a viewer or a listener. Um, and for anyone that is not on our Discord, definitely go check it out. Uh, we do have a su uh, episode suggestion um, section. And uh, any suggestion given uh, will definitely be taken into consideration into consideration and uh, more than likely most of them will at least make a list of ones that we plan to do whether or not how quickly we will do them uh, will just kind of be dependent on what we have at the time and uh, what's going on with the community and whatnot so uh, definitely you know go on there to give us some suggestions uh, we definitely like making content that you guys want to hear about and uh, you know we're kind of here for you guys you know we do this because you know we know you guys kind of crave some more uh you know content out there and you know we enjoy doing it uh tonight we have with us a very special guest who is an amazing hobbyist and i'm sure you have seen his work all over the uh you know page from time to time uh we have with us james uh wapple is that how you say it that's how you say it Awesome, good. Hey guys, I'm glad you? I didn't butcher it. <laughs> well, it's been pronounced so, many um, different ways. <laughs> so, a quick rundown of our show. We uh, we do it live every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Uh, Central Time. Uh, that way you guys can call in and kind of talk to uh, us, our guests, uh, either give your two cents, uh, ask questions, just, just about anything. So, um if you guys are listening to this live or even a recording and you want to call in next time we do it live, uh, just call in and we'll try to take callers whenever we can. Um, if, uh, if you are listening live, there should be a number on the link that you've clicked to uh, listen to this, and that's the number you'll call in at. Um, if you call in, uh, it might not uh, I might not be able to get to you right away, so just you know hang in there and you know we'll try to get to you uh, like as soon as uh, you know we can. Um, like I said tonight, we're going to be just talking about the hobby aspect, um, and then uh, we'll probably give another shout out uh, to the uh, tabletop simulator at the end of the show once uh, we kind of wrap it up. Um, but yeah, I'm going to let uh, Brett. Uh, why don't you take us away with uh, with tonight's show? Uh, yeah, sure thing. All right, James. So the focus tonight is hobby, which you are obviously an excellent hobbyist. So the, just to kind of get us started, um, I'm going to start off with let's pretend that I'm brand new to the hobby and perhaps I've never ventured into painting a miniature. And outside of watching your tutorials, um, how would you suggest somebody who's new to it and maybe is a little bit intimidated by painting, how do they break the ice? How do they, how do they get started on this? Um, you know, do they, do they wash the miniature first? Do they, do they prime it? How should they choose what color of primer? How do they pick a color scheme? You know, just some of the really basic stuff. Why don't you, why don't you break that down for us and, and tell us how, 
a guy comes into this and isn't intimidated? I think if we're just going to focus on, say, song miniatures, they already kind of make it easier for somebody who's starting out because leather one piece, there's no assembling, there's no gluing. You don't even have to deal with the mold lines if you don't want to. So I, something like that, or even some of the board game miniatures, like Zombie Side, those kind of things. Maybe we kind of wish there was stuff like that 20 years ago when we got started. Because when we first started, it was it was multi-piece piece thing with Flash and mold. We didn't know what any of that stuff was. We, had, we didn't know what static graph was when we started. No clue. So we were file the mold lines. So maybe that's like the first easy thing to do is just not have to worry about assembling figures and the Song of Ice and Fire Ninjas, I never watched a single one. I just, I take them, I do actually file the mold lines down and you know me, I'll cut them off the bases and do some basing, but you could just literally prime those things. And we use the Badger Spinalist primer because let's say you don't have an airbrush, you can just brush it on. We, we stopped using spray on primer years ago because in Chicago, there's about seven seconds out of the course of a year where it's okay to be spraying outside without screwing up your primer. And it's cheaper. It is one dollar jar of Spinalis is worth $60 of spray primer, quite literally. So, and you don't even need, like I said, we, we must use this stuff for four years before we ever got an airbrush. So it, it works fine with a brush. I just did a, something earlier today. So I said, you know what, I am not starting up that stupid airbrush. I'm just going to take a brush, stick this primer on there, and I'll be good. And that, that's really all you need with the, especially the song figures. As long as you got primer on there with the basing, you really don't have to get too crazy. You could just do some glue and sand and gravel. And these days, there are so many companies that make sand and gravel products. I like to use those different tastes that Vallejo makes. But a beginner, maybe they don't want to be investing that much right away. I would also suggest, well, strongly suggest, if not command, don't be buying these $400 massive steps of paint. For all that is good in this world, you don't need that. You really don't need that many paints. Just pick some colors that you think are going to work with your project. And maybe add to them later because I've seen people walk up to that shelf that's like 400 paints, and they look at them and they just can't decide because there's too many. It's like a kid in the cereal aisle that can't choose a cereal because there's a million types across the plate. Maybe start out small and build that up. You know me, I like to use my craft brushes for most of the work because, well, it's really hard to destroy them, and if you do, well, you're out 30 cents. So I think, too, maybe not start out right away with Windsor Newton Series 7. After a while, you get used to it, then go into it. You know, we sort of had those already because we were both artists. I was a watercolor, so I already had that kind of stuff. Average person, not so much. And it seems like a lot of people that come into song, they're also, they may not have ever painted, say, a 40K figure or a Dark Storage figure or a Reaper miniature. So, oh, that's another Reaper bone. There's another good one. Tend to be one piece. They're indestructible, kind of like song minis. Are they the greatest cast in the world? Not necessarily, but they're cheap, and 
if you if you don't feel satisfied with the results, you don't feel like, oh my gosh, I just spent thirty dollars on this miniature and I've screwed it up. And that's nobody ever likes that. That you're not going to stay long painting miniatures if you're kind of aggravating yourself like that. So that, that's kind of my beginner advice. We don't really, obviously, most of the stuff we're doing is like for intermediate folks and stuff. But if you're just starting out and you don't want to, you want to maybe avoid some of the frustrations that we did early on. Right, let's start with those easier one-piece figures. You just Especially now with the way GW figures are, they're more like 148 steel model kits where the, the face comes in 10 parts and then the rest of the figure is another 40 or 50 parts. So if you're just starting out, maybe maybe don't try to deal with that first. So I, I think you've, you've kind of touched on something um, I want to go back to because it's, I think a lot of hobby guys can relate to it and, uh, Maybe they don't necessarily know why this is happening, but uh, the dreaded fuzzies. When you prime your model, and all of a sudden you notice when you go to paint it that it's got like an almost fur-like fuzzy texture, and so it's uh, it's related to the environment in which you're priming, correct? So um, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's worth touching on that. Um, obviously, you with all of your experience, you, you've stated that you use the brush-on primer and the and the airbrush primer, and it's uh, you know, it, you don't run into that issue. But uh, if someone insists on using a spray, a spray primer, um, how do you suggest that they go about doing that, especially if they live in a climate where it's really humid and they might come across the, the dreaded fuzzy? At that point, spray primer becomes prey primer because when you press the button, you just pray something bad doesn't happen. Uh, in the wintertime... Cold, I actually used to be outside and I would take a hair dryer and I would actually make a little, have a little box, like a spray booth kind of a thing, and I would heat up that area. And it would make it just warm enough so that at least the primer wouldn't freeze on me. When it's humid, you're done. Don't even bother because bad things are just going to happen. And that's, that's why I recommend the brush shine primer because you're in your house you can prime 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It doesn't matter because that's climate-controlled. If it's warm and humid, you are not going to be priming. And you can, but you may get some cottage cheese on your miniature, and then you won't be so happy. And like I said, with the brush down primer set, and more companies besides Badger make it. Paleo has brush down primer. They are not as good. We've kind of found that out once you started using the Sino Res. But there are many GW makes it now. I think Army Painter has a brush-on primer. Reaper has a brush-on primer. That's what they're there for is for those times of the year which is it's too hot, it's too humid. There's nothing you can do about that except be inside. Now if you have an airbrush spray booth maybe you can but at that point you might as well just get the airbrush too and be spraying inside with the airbrush. So I know that's maybe not what people want to hear, but you, you you can sort of mitigate cold, but you can't make it cooler outside. To make the outside warmer, you can't make the outside cooler. You just kind of have to do that indoors. Cause those no, cans I totally agree. Plant, I feel like $15. You get a $5 thing of brush-on primer, it will last you probably as long. And, oh, this is the other thing about the spray priming. 
once I realized that I was spraying the sidewalk and the cardboard box more than the miniatures themselves, and after dealing with all that, I still had to come inside, take black paint or white paint or whatever, and fix all of the areas that the thing still did not hit, I said, what's this stupid? We're already brushing on the primer. Let's just brush it on from the start. And if there's less time, it was easier. I know it seems like it's going to take longer, but how many times have you sprayed something? You, you, you got it sitting in the cardboard box and the wind comes along, and now they're all over the sidewalk, or they've rolled over while they're still wet, and now you've got sometimes they're stuck to the box. We've had that happen. Pretty much nothing but bad things happen with spray on primer. And now I'm seeing, geez, I think it's Army Painter spray on primer. All the cans are exploding now. Not a day goes by that I don't see somebody posting a picture of an Army Painter can just like a block of paint coming out the bottom of it in bubbles. Oof. That For me, the cost, the peace of mind, and being able to do it whenever and wherever you want, it's, it's well worth it. So, yeah, sorry, we're just we're super anti-spray primer. We will never, ever suggest that anybody get that stuff. No, I, I think it's I think it's a really good tip. I've uh, I've had models um, before. I knew why it happened. I went ahead and and painted some models that that had the fuzzies on them. And I've got a unit of Knights of Castle Rock in the attic actually that I won't even put on the table because it, it ruined them. So I think it's a really good thing to touch on. And uh, yeah, I think that's a really good tip uh, using the brush on primer or the airbrush. I mean, you've painted so many models in your life, so uh, if you think that it's worth the time, which time is obviously money for you, James. So uh, if you think it's worth the time, then it's probably worth them considering as well. So uh, I think it's a great tip. Um, to piggyback to that, oh, I just, uh, there's also, speaking of Army Painter, actually the best product they make is their brush on anti-shine because you get just as much frosty from the sealer as you do from the primer for the same exact reason. The Army Painter Anti-Shine, you can brush it on. You can put as much on or as little as you want. So there's parts of the miniature that are never going to be touched. So you don't even bother putting it there. But like say you're doing a Blood Bowl figure where you're actually knocking them face down as part of the game, well, guess what? You could put 10 layers of your brush on Anti-Shine on the nose or the head. You know, the parts where the paint's going to be more likely to rub off. So this kind of dovetails right into the the starting point, the primer, because we get asked all the time about what we use as a finishing varnish. Very nice. My uh, my understanding is we have a caller that uh, is going to come on. They have a question for you. Uh, Dave, is, is the caller ready to come on? Yep. Uh, caller uh, 1029, you're uh, good to go if you want to ask uh, James some uh, questions. Hey, hello. Uh, first, uh, first thing, I'm a first time a painter. Uh, this miniature game is my uh, first time, and uh, uh, for the most most of the time, uh, what I do is I uh, prime everything in black, just because the people told me it hides better uh, any imperfections. And uh, what I would say my question is like I've been having trouble with like painting uh, faces. Uh, my hand is not that sturdy, and every time I use, uh, it looks k- kind of pinkish and doesn't look like like skin color. 
that's kind of my problem. The... And that is... Yes. Oh, go ahead. Uh, pretty much okay. that. And uh, when they, I finish painting, how you perceive the color? Because I'm every time I pull it out the uh, the miniatures from the container and put it on the table, I feel like some of the color is fading out, especially in the swords, stuff like that. Well, I guess the first question is, which, uh, which kind of paint are you using? Uh, it's a... Uh, it's, I don't know exactly the name of the color. It's just says it's uh, flesh. It's, it's called Texas color, something like that. So something I just grabbed for my store that I used to go all the time. It's not, I'm, very, I'm very much known anything about the colors or anything, or which color should I get or anything. So I just grabbed the one that says flesh, and I just start painting with one. Because uh, actually, we tried when we first started years ago. We had artists control paint. We said, "You're both artists," and we said, "Well, we don't need to get any other paint. We'll just use this." And we found out the hard way that that stuff was never meant for miniatures, and it just didn't work for miniatures. Once we then someone said, "Well, you guys realize there's miniature paint. There is paint made for miniatures." We said, "Oh, okay." And of course, the first paint. This is way back in the day. Games Workshop was probably the most common one. And to this day, it's probably still the most common. And if you're a European-based or anything like that, obviously GW and probably Vallejo would be the two biggest European. I guess there's, there's other ones, but Games Workshop is the one that you go into any hobby store, you're just going to have to be walking into it. You won't even be able to miss it. It'll be right and that's probably the first thing that you want to think about is actually getting something that's intended for miniatures because it's just, it's formulated for it. It's going to go on there easier, and it certainly won't change. You know, your, your colors aren't going to look different once you kind of had them on there for a while. They, they should feel exactly when you first put them on. Uh, that that first suggestion right there is, just, and you don't, again, you don't have to buy a ton of jars of it. Just, just buy a few. You get yourself a blue, a green, and see how how that works for you. And then if you think you need more, they're like, you know, I want a brighter green. You get used to that other green, then you're going to buy another green. So that's, that's one of the key things. Now, with the primer, I usually start in the middle. I don't start with black or white. I just I go with gray because... Once you do black primer, every color you put on there looks too light. We didn't realize that. Of course, we started with black primer. That's what people told us. And we said, oh, my gosh, wait a minute. By the time we were halfway through with it, we said, this looks weird. And it's because that, that black primer was kind of seeing our eyes. It was actually playing tricks with our eyes. Then people said, oh, no, real miniature painters use white primer. And we did that. And then we said, well, wait a second. We're spending twice as much time covering up all this white grinder. Why are we doing this? And then we said, all right, well, there's going to be somewhere in between. And we just use gray primer. And it's just a neutral gray. It's not too light. It's not too dark. And it doesn't really, it it works just the same as any other primer, but it's a little easier to start with. And when you see, like on a YouTube channel or whatever, 
99% of the time that when I'm starting out in the miniature, you'll see it trying some kind of a gray. might be light gray, hmm. maybe it's even a dark gray. Yeah, if you're using the airbrush, you can actually put a little bit of shading on there in advance that you're priming. Now, right. I, the reason we like dirt is that they have 18 different colors of primer. So let, let's say you're doing, oh, something like some arcs or whatever, and you wanted to have something that looked a little bit bluish-gray, you could actually grab that bluish-gray primer, and now maybe you've already got a dirt there, and then you put your flesh tones on that, maybe you put your a blue cloak onto that. So it's, it's the primer and the paint. Are kind of, it all kind of works together, but you definitely want to have regular miniature paint. I know there's all kinds of trendy stuff, like I'm using artist acrylics now. I said, well, that's great. So what about the $700 you got invested in miniature paint already? Why exactly have you abandoned that to try this other new stuff? So just we GW paint, it's not necessarily the cheapest paint out there. But whether you're in Australia or Europe or the U.S., it's going to be the easiest to find. My favorite paint is Reaper paint and also the Creature Caster paint. But especially now, they're kind of impossible to find outside the U.S. So it's right. Vallejo is everywhere, but that's actually harder to get here. If you're just looking to go to a store, if you're going to order it online, eh, different story. But if you just want to walk in somewhere and actually see it, then if you have any GW stores near you, they kind of close all the ones near us. So that's why we stopped using GW paint. There were no stores by us that had it. And we said, well, we got Reaper paint. We go to ReaperCon all the time. We know Reaper. They're in Texas. That's pretty darn close to us. So I hope that answers the question there. I know it's kind of a complex answer. But it it sounded like miniature paint would definitely be a handy solution right there because we struggled. I mean, for months, we we thought there was we were doing something wrong. <laughs> so people said, "Wait a minute, you're using what?" And no wonder that's so hard. No wonder that's so difficult, and no wonder it looks weird. Just get the miniature paint; it's designed for it. No, do you think uh, this? Uh new color they just tell me no longer ago, uh, from Citadel contrast paint is that's to be too much or too advanced for a first timer uh, it's really weird it's like they, they advertise the contrast paint as being for beginners but I've used it and in some ways it almost kind of confuses beginners a little bit it's also a really expensive product I mean, it's something I want to last eight hours a jar here. And the other paints, they're not super cheap. But, yes, you can use the contrast paints. And let's say you want, I don't know, Knights uh, of Castle Rock, and you want to go with a lot of red. I've painted, actually, I've got probably six different YouTube videos of different Lannisters that I've painted with contrast paints being part of the, the mix there. But I... It works okay. It'll, it'll give you some sort of shading, but then you're going to have to use a lighter primer color. Or it's even better when you have some kind of pre-shading. So let's say you start out with a dark gray primer, and then you put a lighter primer over the top of that. It helps out the contrast paint that much more. But then if you're just beginning, that's kind of a lot of steps. 
maybe you're just better off, okay, look, I'm just going to take some red, put that on there. I'm going to take some kind of, like, known oil, Dublin mud. I think they're still the two washes that are the most popular of the GW washes. Maybe wash over the top of that. Now your red is darker. Then you can take a lighter red, and now you have, uh, say, like, four, like, crushed bowmen or the pikemen or halberds, sorry. Now you have a little lighter red. And if you want metallic, they have plenty of metallic paint. And you can still take your null oil or whatever the darker washes are and go over the top of that. And it's on for the table because I'm, I'm guessing that's all you just want to do is get these on the table and have some paint on them. And that's, that's probably the yeah, simplest, easiest to do it. That's probably the simplest way to do it. Yeah, there's a lot of companies that have different wash products. I know Army Painter's Strong Tone is kind of neat. It, that works pretty well for some of the things I just described, but I think that's more of, again, more of an American-based company. I mean, I'm no so, uh, expert like James here, but I found, especially if you're a beginner and you're just looking to get some color or whatever, get your guys on the table and look somewhat presentable. Contrast is not a terrible way to go. I actually did my entire Free Folk Army in the contrast just because there's a lot of them. So, I mean, they're not my best work, but they're still decent and presentable and whatnot. So they're not a bad option. It just takes some getting used to to finagle with them and whatnot. Yeah, well, so one for, uh, for our caller, uh, we, we have time for, like, one more question, if you have uh, something else you wanted to ask real quick. Uh, one more uh, thing. Uh, I'm trying to paint. Uh, I'm using pretty much the Starks, and I'm trying to paint the uh, tunic kind of like a, no white, but like a faint white, like kind of yellowish, like make it look like it's old and kind of rough. Style. I don't know how to do that. I only can been painting white and trying to do it kind of dark, but like this doesn't work. Well, you could take some kind of almost a, like a tan gray, almost like a wash, uh, and you could do that. There's plenty of well, even the strong tone that that army paint is strong tone. If you sort of uh, cut that down a little bit, it could make them look a little bit dirtier. We actually, for a while, we started using some weathering powders for things like that because it, it just sort of gets down into those crevices. Now, you have to seal it in some way, so that's kind of, that would be a little bit more difficult for you. But some sort of washes or something like that, just to, if you start with almost an ivory color, you know, sort of like a not quite white, not pure white, but some sort of a white that has a little bit of a yellow or tan to start with, that's your base or whatever, and then try and do some kind of washes over that. And by wash, I don't mean, like, soak the brush in water and then just boom, plop it on there. You want to kind of exercise a little bit of control over it. You can, there's tons of videos on using the contrast paint. I, I, I've got a bunch of them, and all the other YouTube guys, they also have lots of different ways to use it. Sometimes it can be a little confusing when you watch too many people, and they all say different things. <laughs> the next person that was my, my problem. <laughs> so that that's I, uh, I watch so many videos. There. I don't know what to do at this point. 
you can even just spatter mud onto them. You find some kind of a medium brown that you like, and you could, you could almost use like a toothbrush or something, and just kind of you know flick the bristles, and it would actually spatter mud on to the bottom of their cloaks, on their pants, on their boots. I started doing that with historical miniatures, and then I started doing on my fantasy miniatures too, because. It's like, wait a minute, I'm walking to the grocery store on the sidewalk in the rain, and my pants are all muddy. I'm like, what the heck happened here? I'm in a city. So yeah, that's another way, too. If you're looking to get some kind of cheap little extra effect on your miniature, just batter some mud on them. Heck, even if it gets on their clothes, you could even kind of smear it with your fingers. And now it's literally like they've got mud on their hands, and they've wiped it on their cloak or their tunic or something. And it would, it would make it look a little bit older, like it's been worn for a while. It's been stained. Even even using sponges for that. Yeah, the sponges are a good thing for that, too. So, yeah, but the weathering thing, it's, we first kind of, like I got into it with the historicals, but then I realized, well, it works just as well, even better for fantasy things, because now it gives them that little extra touch of realism. Because when you think about it, Song of Ice and Fire miniatures, they're basically historical figures. And there's and now I guess some of the newer things, like the shapeshifter guys, that's more of a fantasy thing. But all the Lannisters, all the Starks, they're basically just guys. They're just people right. with axes. And... Yeah, it's awesome. All right. Uh, thank you uh, for calling in. Um but uh I'm gonna have to let you go. Uh definitely call in uh, next week or whatnot and you know, continue to listen to the show. Uh we definitely got a lot more that we're gonna be talking about on here. Um hopefully uh some of that uh helps you out a little bit. Yeah, it does. Thank, thank Thanks you for calling. Thank you. Yeah, again, thank you so much. Yeah, hey, I just uh, I wanted to mention one thing. So after you know hearing our caller, I just it made me realize even that we have a lot of different um, listeners and in, in the different stages as far as like the hobby goes. Some people are familiar with a lot of terms we were using, and James was explaining, and and some some of them may not be. So I just kind of wanted to go over a quick recap of different terms that we were using and just kind of like some basics in case anyone doesn't know. Um, but so, uh, and some of the, so like obviously everyone knows what paint is and, and um, but as James said, it's important to use paints that are designed for miniatures. Um, they're going to lay on differently. They're going to um, do, they're, they're going to just work better for you for your miniatures. Um, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like an expert painter, but I think I'm pretty decent at painting. Um, so they're going to lay on better. So that's number one. Uh, another term that James was using in explanation was washes. Uh, washes lay on different than paint. So paint is usually like a little thicker. Uh, washes are kind of like, they're almost like water. So what a wash will do is that it'll, it'll go on a miniature and kind of just dig into the, like the crevices and all the creases and, and kind of just create shadows. And then it also, if you have paint already on there, uh, it also kind of will darken the paint a bit. And then typically painters will go over it um, with, with another layer to, and then not going where the creases are. That way you can create a bit of a shadow or like some depth 
in your miniature. Um, and you, eventually you go into your highlights and all that other fun stuff. And then contrast paints is kind of like a mix of both paint and wash. So it's kind of like, it's, it's like, it's like a wash and a paint in, in the sense that it, when you put it on a miniature, it will go into the crevices and create shadows, but then will also sort of give you like a light base coat on the miniature as well. So it's kind of like a two-in-one product, but because it's like a two-in-one product, it, you have to use it very differently than you would just a wash or just a, just a paint. So even though it is like GW, they typically recommend it for beginners. Um, as James said, it, it's kind of tricky because it's really, it's, it's very different than using regular paint. And it's very different than using a regular wash, which is a, the traditional style of painting. Um, so I, I personally, I've used contrast paints. Personally, I think they're a good tool. They're a good tool to have in your toolbox. Um, you know, and again, this is my opinion. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone beginning because it is so different than your traditional, like, painting style, which I think anyone, as you progress in the painting world, you're going to want to end up doing that, like doing a more traditional style of painting. So I, I would say... Just do what James said, you know, get yourself uh, a good primer uh, and then start with the, the colors you want and then get the washes you need for the project. Um, I think the term for it is like, uh, I don't know, it's kind of, it is a term for it. It's like, it's like project planning or something. Um, but basically, like if you're going to do Starks, for example, like our caller was, you, I would recommend like grabbing some blues you might use, maybe some blacks and then getting like a black wash. And then you, and then as you progress with different projects, uh, you'll project plan accordingly and then buy those paints and eventually build up your paint arsenal versus just buying a big set with a bunch of colors you may actually never even use. Um, so, uh, and then um, some of the brands that James was talking about in the industry that's really big, um, Citadel, which is GW products, those are a staple. They're kind of like, I don't know, like the Max or like the Apple of the, like, like the laptop company, like Apple of the uh, painting industry or paint, miniature painting industry. And then there's like, you know, he said Vallejo is another good one. Reaper. Those are all big name uh, companies that have very good products. A lot of people use them. Um, so if you don't know where to start or what paints to get that would be work best for miniatures, those three Vallejo Reaper um, and, uh, Citadel are good good places to look. They have a good range of products. I even know Citadel, they even have, like, when you walk into a shop, like James said, you're going to see them, and they're going to be sorted to where it's, like, you know, all the blues, and it'll even label them, like, base, you know, highlight, uh, wash, whatever. So, like, it's super organized. Um, it's super easy to, like, project plan that way with Citadel. So it's a good way for beginners. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention that because I just – I don't know what everyone's level is, but I just wanted to kind of clarify a few of the, the terms and, and different things we were talking about. So, Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, you know, the, the, you know, knowing what all the different types of paints do will go a long way in, uh, you know, helping you figure out, you know, what, what kind of steps you need to take and what techniques you're going to have to do to get the – you know, the, what you want on the model. Um, James, yeah, I actually have a uh, um, couple of questions. Uh, so, oh, uh, before I get to those, um, so for those uh, listening, uh, a couple of the things we might go over today is uh, some of uh, James' uh, models that he's painted, uh, Ice and Fire in particular. Uh, as we're talking about them, uh, we're going to post up the pictures on our page so you, you can kind of get a visual of what we're talking about. 
and it'll give you kind of a better idea of like the techniques and you know some of the steps that went into uh painting them but uh james i was wondering um what kind of got you into hobbying uh both um you know painting and possibly playing and if you do play um uh is it uh kind of 50 50 you're mostly like a painter mostly playing you just hear you know uh just kind of all that stuff well it's a actually a really wild story that basically began 20 almost 20 years ago uh at the time i the only game i i knew about was blood bowl bowl in the 1990s it's <laughs> a whole different game now than it was back then. It was the only game I knew about, and it was the one that my friends were playing. And right around that, that summer of 2001, I happened to have some Lizardman figures that one of the guys gave me that was supposed to be my Lead Bolt team. And my wife, Kathy, she said, hey, are you going to paint those? And I said, I, I don't think so. You know, if you want to mess around with them, go ahead. And I watched her painting those, and she was having so much fun. And I said, wow. Oh. Well, this this might be fun too. Do you mind if I grab one or two? She's all here, and we just we both painted them at the table together. Because she actually painted a few miniatures before, because her brother got her into I think it was Warhammer Fantasy, the role playing game. So she knew a little bit about minis at least. I knew nothing, and we sort of got kind of hooked on the Blood Bowl thing, and to the point where I started making stadiums. Well, at that same time, you had this little thing called 9/11 which how everything has been wiped out economically today, well, that's what it was for us. Because all the shows were canceled, including our biggest one of the year, that was 20% of our income was gone in a heartbeat. It was just gone. And the entire next year, I still have a 2002 planning calendar with no shows written on it because we didn't do any. It was, there was no point. The few that were happening, there was no point in doing them. So kind of... It's just like we're mirroring that environment now. And actually, the lessons we learned then paying dividends now. But we said, okay, we have to be able to do stuff that doesn't rely on us going somewhere and hanging artwork or showing artwork somewhere. Right at that time, you had three things. You had eBay, PayPal, and Cool Mini or Not. Uh, eBay, you used to do your listing. You, still had, you had to do HTML. That's how old it was. And PayPal was this really neat thing where, wait a minute, someone from anywhere in the world can electronically transfer us money and we don't have to go anywhere. And, though, and then Cool Mini was the place for us to show the miniatures to people that who then might go on eBay and buy them. And those three things just happened to come along all in 2002. And we enjoyed painting the miniatures. It was a fun thing. And we said, well, we better like this a whole lot because we might have to do this for a living. By 2003, miniature painting had totally supplanted the, the 2D art. But all the stuff that we did in 2D art, just kind of from a mental standpoint, it's perfect for miniatures. That's actually way more fun to paint miniatures than 2D art, like by a factor of 10, because you can't play war games with a painting, but my 17-volt action armies, I can play with those. Yes, I have 17 of them, and five of them are French. Uh, I love playing Lord of the Rings. I'm probably going to have another dozen armies of that by the time I'm done. I love making terrain. I've got four different bolt-action tables. I'm already into my, geez, probably my 10th Lord of the Rings terrain piece. I'm going to make an entire Rohan board for myself. You're sensing a theme here. So 
yes, it's what I do for a living, and I do it basically 18 to 20 hours a day, every day, since forever. But it is also, you know, if you say, look, Jim, you never have to paint a miniature for anybody else ever again. And I would say, well, that's really cool, except I need a bigger house, because I'm still going to be painting a whole bunch of minis for me, because it's fun. I enjoy the heck out of it, and now that I'm using the oil, that's even more fun because I can get a whole bunch of dudes painted. They look just like the acrylic painted ones, no difference in quality or anything like that. It just takes almost 70% less time. And for someone like me, yes, the time is money sort of thing, but less time means, oh, I could actually have three bolt action armies done and the time it would normally take me to do one. This is good. I mean, just like, you know, Song Ice and Fighters, you could paint a Lannister army, well, plus some Resurrection Queens and maybe a Free Folk army too, instead of just one. Now you're not stuck with just one army because you can you can get in a rut with play style, get really sick of playing that same army. And I've heard that with my Easterlings. They're like, Jim, for God's sake, please play something else besides your Easterlings. So that is why I'm furiously working away on a Rohan army right now, because for all that is good, they do not want to see Easter Wings again for as long as possible. Me and you just became good friends. I want you to know that. (laughs) (laughs) I like both of those armies. (laughs) I love to do, when I do one army, I always do kind of the opponent for it. So when I did my Grey Knights, I also did a Leech army. When I did my sisters of battle, I also had an orc army, and the whole the, the stories tied into each other. When I did my tomb kings, I was going to work on a Bretonian army. So all of these things always have opponents. And well, okay, if you're going to do Easterlings, you have this. Now that I'm doing Rohan, of course they have to have a Dunlending army with some wards, maybe a Staramon, and maybe a guy that cries into a handkerchief now and then and bums out the other guys, dudes. I mean, I can't, I can't. I'll confess that maybe Grima Worm's tongue might have just like pressed up all of Boromir's might points in the game, which I enjoyed very much. The opponent less so. So and I enjoyed when I was playing my Lannisters. I I called them the Army of Nukes because that's what it was. And said, I'm going to do this. Well, you're not right now. I'm going to do this. No, you're not doing that either. Can I do this? Nah, you're not doing that either. So that was, yeah, I love, love me some armies. That's a, I think that's a really uh, cool concept, making sure you have an opponent army to each army you start if you have the time and money, of course. But uh, I like that idea a lot, personally. It's so really fun because... I have, uh... a... Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Uh, oh, no, go ahead. We don't... Oh, I, I, I was going to jump so into much. a new topic. So I was going to let you finish up. I'll go ahead and jump, jump into something new. Okay. So last uh, thing I wanted to ask before we kind of jump into, like, some of your uh, different units that you've painted. Um, so this is something I even struggle with, uh, and I've been painting for, I don't know, 23 years now, and is yellow and white. And I'm sure a lot of other people out there, and I'm more so talking making your yellow and white look amazing, like without airbrush, without any like anything like that, just simply brush on 
yellow and white, uh, no contrast, just straight up, you know, paint. And what uh, white in particular that you would recommend? Because um, most whites I've ran into are always clumpy and they go bad fast. And just uh, any tips you have for maybe making that uh, a bit better? A couple of things about white and yellow. Unfortunately, nothing is white and yellow. It's kind of like whitish and yellowish. The mountain, well, when we get into the mountain that rides, if, if I gave you a picture of that, that's something we can talk about there. I, I know I got a bunch of videos on yellow and white too. The Prolicrol paint, the Creature Caster one, if you're looking for stuff, and this is like with white and yellow, everybody says I got to paint 20 coats. You know, my Imperial Fist was 57 coats of yellow paint. If you use the Prolicrol yellow, you're not going to need that many layers of it. And that they're their whites and their yellows. All of their paints were designed to kind of blot out the sun. And it's even true for their lighter color. I've been shocked. I'll never forget the first time I used those. And I went, whoa, that yellow covered. I wasn't expecting it to cover well. And actually, I ran into a problem because I was expecting it to be like most other yellows that are kind of transparent, right? And what's underneath shows through. I put this yellow on there and just, boom, it covered. <laughs> what's underneath it? I went, whoa hidden when they said their paints are designed to cover. Uh, what, what brand was that? Re- I missed that one. That's the Pro Acrylic. They're from Creature Caster. Okay. Uh, it's, I call it the paint of a thousand names. I wish they just would have called them Creature Caster paint, but they, I call them Monument Flow Fuse Creature Caster paint. I mean, it's like there's three names on the freaking jar. So guys, just pick one, please. If you want to buy them, they're on the Creature Caster website. Please don't confuse people by calling them other things, which is hilarious because all of their colors are called just like purple is purple. There's no bad moon yellow. It's just bright yellow, dark yellow, medium yellow. There's nothing fancy about the color name line itself. I wish they would have stuck with something like, well, Creature Caster because it's sold on their website. And it's actually for the, you get these big old jars, the new ones are what, 20 something out there, 22 milliliters. They're the size of contrast paint jars, except they cost like a third as much. And it covers like crazy, so you don't necessarily need to use a whole bunch of it. And now they've got these transparent paints, and that's what probably 70% of my videos over the last two months, instead of using the contrast paints, I've been using the transparent. Because you throw a little water in those things, you got yourself a contrast paint, contrast medium, which, well, there's another eight bucks or so if you can find the stuff. So that's, I always try to find equivalent. Like when I was using the Reaper Clears, people say, ah, we can't get those. What about contrast? So I use those. Then people say, wow, contrast is pretty expensive. What about these Prolithil transparent? So I tried all three. They're not interchangeable, like you can do this exact same thing with each one, but there's sort of an equivalent. But yeah, the, the pro acrylic, as far as cost goes, as far as the quality on the paint, and there is no there's no shiny with them. They dry super matte, which is always a really handy thing. And they're nice, rough, tough paints also. They, they can take a beating. I, I really like those. And it's a Canadian-based company. Uh, it's so obviously North America easier to get. They were in the process of 
setting up all kinds of European warehouses and all that, but between things, matters of trade and now of viruses, that that sort of is on hiatus a little bit. So if you're in the U.S., you should not have a problem getting those. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to get that uh, info from you afterwards, and we'll probably post it up on our uh, on our uh, small council page for others to uh, you know find it out. Because um, white and yellow, you know, granted, you know, there's a lot of videos out there showing you how um, most of the stuff that uh, I'm usually not that great at uh, is just out of laziness of not going out there because there's so many good resources and videos and you know tips on how to do these things but uh, you know white and yellow has always been so hard for me that you know it was so hard for me to do yellow for my Baratheons that mm. after just trying it over and over and over and just not getting it to look the way I wanted I ended up just saying screw it we're going to Stannis colors and I went all uh you know, red and black with just some yellow, like, highlights. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's definitely nice to know that there's a, a brand of paint out there that covers as well as you're saying. So I'll definitely have to try that out. Um, Brett, uh, are you still with us? Oh, no, Brett. No, I'm I'm here. I'm here. I didn't go nowhere. <laughs> um, I was so, uh, Brett, I'll have you uh, take us away with uh, if you want to go over the first um, uh, unit uh, that we'll talk about, or if James, if you have oh, uh, one uh, in particular. Oh, sorry. I, I, I was going uh, to say really quick. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Real quick before we move on to you know James's work, I, I did have one question. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about putting paint and different products on miniatures. Um, I wanted to ask you your opinion on how to take paint off, right? So let's say like you do a, a model, you're not happy with it, or, you know, you buy one used maybe somewhere and there's paint, but you're like, you know what, I want to repaint this. Um, what's your best tips for taking it off? Like I know I use um, the, the cleaning product, Simple Green, and I hit it with a toothbrush and scrub it off. But uh, I don't know, we're just curious on your thoughts on what the best way would be. Um, I think in 20 years, I've maybe stripped three miniatures. Um, we realized that you could just basically paint over it, but when we needed to, because like there was super glue or whatever, we just used a simple green. That's, I know there's other, what they call it, a purple pond. It's not like purple power, I guess, is another sort of a similar thing. And basically, you just chuck the stuff in there and you sort of let it sit for a few days. And then after it's maybe had a chance to loosen up, then you just sit there with a toothbrush and just rub away. And if it doesn't come off easy, you just kind of keep leaving it in there. Uh, yeah, we haven't really done too many rescue projects in the last many years. But even when something goes, we don't like the color of it, we just say, look, we're just going to use that as our underpainting. We'll just paint right over it. Now mm-hmm. we're not stripping this. I've seen some people, they'll strip the same miniature 10 times. Literally, they'll, they'll be an hour into it. They say, I don't like this. And then they strip it. I said, really, you could have just painted over what you had. And here's the other thing, too. It's when you, and it goes for anything, if you just throw it in the garbage and start from scratch, you don't necessarily learn what went wrong. 
So if you just kind of struggle through, and you may hate that stupid miniature, you may want to step on it by the time it's done. But we, each of us, Kathy and I, we've each had miniatures in the last week or two that drove us nuts, that we hated. And everybody else is telling us how much they love them. Oh, that, that's fantastic. Like, we hated that thing. Smashed that with a hammer. But because we kind of stuck with it, that so when it's, if it's not like a total disaster or a reclamation project, almost best off just kind of plowing straight ahead. But simple green, uh, CLR, yeah, I think we might have used that, but it's simple green and that purple power, just, they're more gentle on you and the miniature, I would think. And we just basically stick the stuff in a plastic container and, well, hope that eventually that paint would start coming off of it. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I, I you know, I, I did the same thing. I just was curious if there was, like, a, you know, a better way or, or if you're doing this anything differently, so. Yeah, that's, uh, people are always asking us about stripping figures, and it, it's kind of like, well, how do you make the oil paints dry faster? They say we use acrylic. They dry a lot faster. So it's just. When people ask us stuff like that, we say, ah, sorry, we don't have a real great answer to that because we just sort mm-hmm. of paint over it. We don't like it. Gotcha. Yeah, for sure. So what, uh, what was uh, you had, uh, your next question there, Brent? Brett, sorry. I had like three people named Brent. Oh, no worries. No worries at all. Um, I think you kind of just touched on one of the one of the neat little things that you do that I think I want you to kind of go into a little bit of detail about um, using oil paintings to paint a, a, uh, a model like that. Um, yeah. Maybe just give some, some basic techniques. I, it's probably a little bit more advanced, but uh, actually, you know what, before we go into that, why don't you cover um, the, the importance of a wet palette, uh, how you feel about a wet palette and uh how you go about mixing some of your colors to create some of these really natural looking colors that you put on the models, because yours are a little bit more complex than just a, a darker tone with a, a lighter tone highlight. You mix in some greens and some reds and things of this nature. So why don't you uh, just uh, break down that, that wet palette and uh, how you use that and why it's so important. Well, actually I'd never used the wet palette at all until last year when the weather was so crazy as I'm trying to film all my tutorials, the paint is just drying because it rained so much. We had a million fans on in the house. So it was like literally somebody had a hairdryer on my palette. And I said, okay, this is stupid. This is not working. And there was no way I was going to buy a wet palette. And I said, wait a minute. We have saved 40 or 50 Chinese students. They're everywhere in the house. We have standing right? We were using it for basing materials. And we had three or four of them that had nothing in them. We were using chamois sponges to mop up water wherever that came in. And I said, wait a minute. What's different about this chamois sponge than the $10 sponge you got in your your, your wet cup? Because Kathy has one, whatever it's called. And we're like, yeah, that's a chamois sponge that is somebody's charging $10 for. Okay, there's parchment paper on top. Well, we already had parchment paper because we needed some for Kathy's wet palette. So I had a sealing, a, a sealable container. I had a chamois sponge. I had parchment paper, and we had plenty of water. And the other thing I noticed is that it also it just worked better on screen. So those three things, Chinese food container, chamois, kind of a higher quality baking parchment, that there's my wet palette. 
no problem. It was it was it's free. Uh, and well and the food that was in that container was pretty darn tasty. So I got to eat the food and then I got to use the container for basically an unlimited supply of wet palate. When one gets a little bit dirty, I just chuck it in the garbage. If I need a wet palate to go somewhere, I can say, okay, here's my Chinese food container. And it feels even better than a wet palate. So they see Kathy trying to use a rubbing alcohol to get the mold out of hers. And I'd open up one of mine after two weeks and I'd just start using it. Like, okay, this is free. There's no mold inside. This is good. So, yeah, $30 on a wet palate. If you've got Tupperware containers, you got a wet palate. If you got a chamois sponge and parchment paper and water, you got a wet palate. Uh, the wet palette, for me, it was really more just to keep that paint alive during while I'm filming because uh, I mixed a lot of paint. You know me. I don't sit there and get, okay, here's my bright red, here's my darker red, here's my darker, darker red. I'll just take a red and I'll mix the dark green with it to make my darker red. If I need a lighter red, I'm going to take some form of yellow and mix that in my red, boom, now i got lighter red. I keep that simple because I have to match paint jobs that I might have done 15, 16 years ago. And I'm always fond of showing in my videos these dead reaper come in the jars that it does now. I think as recently as maybe seven years ago, they still sold that paint in screw top jars. None of those exist anymore. Those are all gone. Eventually, any paint color that you love will go away. Some companies, <coughs> GW <coughs> Games Workshop, will get rid of those sooner than some other companies. But your favorite color will go away. That is, that is kind of inevitable. So that's why I use the, the wet palette. It, it just lets me mix more colors and people can see, all right, Jim took the red over here, the green over here. He needed a darker red. Or, and he just mixed the green with the red that made it darker. Uh, he needed a purple that maybe was not so reddish. Well, look over here. He took a purple or and a blue, mixed those together, so there's a little more blue in it instead of another jar of that. Now, you see what my palette looks like. It looks like a, a tornado came through. Instead of the little tiny dots of paint, right, that is because I'm, I'm constantly mixing the paint. I know people are afraid of that, but I know Reaper has those triads, but what is a triad? It's basically that same flesh tone with a little more white in it. You can do that yourself and save yourself probably four bucks a jar. You get yourself the one white, which you probably already got. You get yourself the one jar of maybe medium flesh tone or darker flesh tone. You just lighten it yourself. And that's where a wet towel is handy. Two days, three days, it's still there. So it's almost like the wet palette makes it even less necessary to have all of those paint jars. Because if you mix the color, you, know, you won't have to then the next 10 minutes later remix the same thing. It'll just, it'll be there. It's like you've made your own colors. Heck, there's been times we've actually made our own paint colors where we said, you know what? I'm constantly mixing this, this green and this red together. I'm just going to take a small container. I'm going to take X amount of this color and this color. I'm going to mix them together. I'm going to put them in that container. That is my new color that I just made for myself for this army, which apparently I'm using all the time. I made my own primer colors, same way. 
primer anyway, why don't I just make a jar of it myself? I'll take some of the green and some of the black primer and make a green-black primer. Hopefully, I know that's kind of a weird answer, probably not the answer you were expecting, but I'm used to it because most times when people ask me questions on one of these, it is so opposite of what the conventional wisdom is that they just kind of go, what? So I'm used to it. I'm used to that. <laughs> um, so no, I actually it's... have a, a question that goes uh, with with uh, that question. Is um, So since you kind of, you know, use your, you know, a, an unconventional way of making your wet pellets, uh, do you make your own washes and or textured paint? Because uh, I've seen some videos out there where you can, like, mass produce washes or textured paint for way cheaper than you can buy it, uh, you know, the like the, the brand name stuff. Uh, I don't really use washes in the way, like, the contrast paint. Wasn't it Goober Town that he had an entire, maybe two videos that were dedicated? Uh, he just challenged himself. He said, I will make my own contrast paint. And he tried six or seven different mediums, and he tried, I forget what his base colors were, that they're regular paint colors, but I know he did at least one, maybe two videos, just because he wanted to make his own contrast paint, because he thought he could make them, well, at least as good, if not better, or much less, and make it more custom, colors that he needed, as opposed to, okay, here's the 34 that they've got. So that... I think that might be a something that you're talking about. People making their own washes. For me, I basically just take regular paint colors and add enough liquid to them to turn them into a glaze. I don't really do a lot of washes. It's more glazes. And terminology-wise, there's a really controlled wash. So a wash kind of goes to, I don't want to say all over the place, but it's a lot more liquid. A glaze could be where all you're doing is just put a little bit of a darker tint on, a, on the guy's cheek or something. Or at the top of the helmet needs a little more blue. So you take a really kind of watered-down blue color with a smaller brush, and you just sort of gently glaze over the surface. But I don't have inks. People used to always ask me about inks. I'm like, I've never used one, ever, in 20 years. Never tried using an ink. It's just that wasn't the way that I painted. And again, I know conventional wisdom kind of was you do your base coat, then you make lighter colors, and then you use ink. You get all of your shading. It was the GW way, too. Other companies sort of recommended doing that. But for me, unfortunately, that method is way too slow. And I mean, like, way too slow. I, I need to paint way faster than that. And that, that layering process or, like, the washes and all that, it just takes too long. I need to, to ramp that up like by orders of magnitude. So I, I never that's why I never use the inks or it's kind of the washes the way traditional folks do. As far as the the basting type stuff, I really love the the different Vallejo products. There's the sandy paste, the oxide paste, earth paste, and those are so good that for me the time that I would spend trying to make my own version of that. And I've kind of tried. I've tried taking sand and glue and plaster and other things together. And I said, you know, eh, it's not quite worth it. There was one thing, though, it was that when I found out that Make Ammo, their mud product, their oil-based mud product, was just plaster and oil paint, 
I went, okay, that I can do. Because what was happening is it was drying in the jars. No matter how tight I sealed the container, all of a sudden within a month, here's this entire jar, and I'm, how the heck does this dry? Well, because it's plastered. That's what plaster most wants to do is dry. And say, all right, now I'm just going to make my own. And that was that was handy because I could make it whatever color that I wanted, that I wanted. So that's, that's probably the one product that I made myself, but that was, that was more self-preservation than anything else because I could not get their regular mud products to stay wet. I think I've got five different jars of it, and every single one of them is dried out. And some of them were barely used. So hopefully that kind of answers that question in a weird way, which is a theme. I'm answering every question about the most weird way possible. No, that's I I like the answer actually. Um, it's a good idea with the plaster. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about how I use that. That's something I'll probably um, do in a video. Hope just as long as I can kind of test it and try out different things. Um, James, we're getting a little bit close to running out of time, but I think I think one question that um more of our novice painters are going to ask is. The uh, the dreaded non non metallic metal. Um, what kind of tips can you give a guy for doing that? Because you can sit and stare at a non metallic painting, and, and and maybe you think in your head that you know how to go about it and create it, but it, it never just uh, it never just turns out the way that you want it to. So um, we're going to post up some examples of your of your non metallic paints uh, there on the Facebook page for the guys to look. Um, Chris, if you guys can go ahead and, and get those posted up. Uh, he's got uh, his Mountainsmen were non-metallic metal, and uh, I think he did uh, a Brienne, correct, is non-metallic metal? The Brienne, the Lannister Halberds are non-metallic, well, and basically all of it is all non-metallic metal. Yeah, and the, the crossbows, you did all that of it. super cool chrome reflection off of their uh, yeah. the breastplate and metal. their helmets. Yeah, well, why don't you, uh, uh, actually, I don't on that. Uh, so the, what, with the, what, what kind of... Go ahead. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask, with what those? kind of tips can you offer? Uh, do, you put a, do you put a lamp in front of it to see where the light bounces off? Just kind of walk us through that process because it's really, it's really intimidating for a lot of people, and I think... Uh, I think some people want to give it a try, so we want to we want to hear it from you because your work is is excellent. How how would you how do you go about it from a a person who's never really tried it or a novice that's wanting to get better? What's act, what's handy is that the miniature will tell you what colors need to go where on your metals. So we'll just use an example. If you've got the the mountains, then so you've got most likely a blue sky. Right, and you've got sort of a brownish gray temple floor for the most part, and they're wearing yellow for the Lannister Halberds. They're on the same kind of bases. They got the blue sky, but they're wearing red cloth. You have to reflect three things. Then you must reflect the ground, you must reflect the sky, and you got to reflect that cloth. Because I've seen it so many times where people have this super shiny sword, shield, armor, and there's like a big the red cloak right next to it and somehow magically there's some kind of like impervious barrier that stops all the red from the cloak or the banner or whatever from reflecting on their super shiny metal. I'm not quite sure how this happens. It's like some weird metaphysical thing. 
So if you got a sort of a blue sky, anything on the helmet, on the shoulder pads, on the board, anything that's facing towards the sky that's got to have some kind of a blue in it, there's that sort of sky blue, it's like a cyan color, uh, even most, even uh, pro they have a color that's literally called sky blue. And guess what? It looks just like sky blue. Uh, GW, God knows what they're called, but they have a color that looks just like sky blue. Anything, let's say on their legs, you know, they got the shin armor around there, they got those knees, piece chunks on their armor. If it's pointing towards the ground, it's going to be more brown, it's going to be more gray, because if it's sky colored, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. And then you, you can, especially on things like the crossbows and the halberds, you can see that there's red reflected on those. I think it was maybe about a year and a half ago, somehow on Instagram, these cosplayers who are also armorers, I see their pictures. There's guys in actual armor out in the woods posing for pictures and doing stuff. And I'm like, holy smoke, you can see everything reflected in their armor. Yet their arm is sort of across their chest. Sort of have to reflect some of the color of the clothes. If it's red or blue or whatever, you're going to want to reflect that. It doesn't have to be like a perfect thing, but just some red. These, it's like a roadmap, right? Everything that's pointed up, give it some kind of a bluish tint. If you've got green grass, if he's walking over green grass or yellow flowers or something like that, then anything that's facing towards the ground, you should have some kind of greenish color, some kind of yellow color reflected in there. The other thing with the non-metallic, you have to have some heavy-duty contrast in there. So that means having a really bright highlight next to something that's really dark. Sword blades are the most obvious part. You see it all the time on a sword blade, right, where one half is sort of really bright and sort of sky blue colored, then the other half is almost a dark brown with some, like, grayish browns in there. That's a typical skyer because the one side of the sword is reflecting the sky, which is lighter. The other side is reflecting those darker brown, gray, green earth tones. Uh, that's four basic things to remember about non-metallic metals. And just, just look at that miniature. Now, when I was doing, I was doing some Rohan stuff, and I went, okay, we have this green cloak. We're right next to this armor here. Green armor looks weird, but what's weirder is non-metallic metal. It doesn't take into account there's this green right next to it. Uh, the the mountain that rides is another one of those. He's got all that yellow. I had to, and he's got black and steel armor. So that was a real interesting painting ninja to try and get that yellow reflected onto the black and steel armor without it glowing like a safety stripe. So that one, yeah, it was, that was an interesting one. And he was friggin' huge. So that made it even more interesting. So I hope those are kind of some simple ideas. I know that breaks it down to its most simple form. But those are kind of the easiest to remember because people, I know, I've seen these super complex formulas that people create for it. And that's the way that works great on that one miniature. But what about if you're, like, the difference between the mountains men, Brienne, and the Lannisters? What's the biggest difference is the color of the clothes they're wearing. And you will see in every single one of those, there's yellow reflected in the armor for mountains men, turquoise in the armor for Brienne and plenty of red reflected in the armor for the Lannisters. 
Now, you do object source lighting. That's a whole other a whole other game right there. I, I think we probably have some of the pyros. I have sent you pictures of the pyros, too. I don't know if you wanted to dive into object source lighting or not. Yeah, we can definitely touch on it. It's an advanced technique. Um, we've covered some of the basic stuff, and I think some of our listeners want to hear some of the more more advanced techniques. So, yeah, um, yeah, feel free to take that away, and, and we might we might close out with that one. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely one I'm interested in it as well. It's, uh, it's not something I've really ever tried, so I'm very curious to hear what you have to say on that one. It's just like freehand object source lighting is something that people psych themselves out before they've even started. They're just so terrified of it that it just, they don't even end up not doing it at all. For me, one of the first things that I paint in on the miniature is the object source lighting. Because way back in the day, we used to paint the whole freaking miniature and then kind of put the, the lighting over the top of it. Two things. First of all, you are obviously worried about ruining whatever you did before. And second of all, I said, well, yeah, I could have probably saved 45 minutes not painting that stuff because it's all covered by the object source lighting core anyway, so that was stupid. Why did I waste almost an hour on that? That's another reason why I start out with the lighting. Because I think we've seen this, well, and probably a lot of people have had it happen, and I see this a lot with lighter colored stuff. So you see somebody that has, let's just use Gandalf as an example. I've seen Gandalf in his white cloak, and he's got his staff, which is supposed to be glowing. And there's this weird blue, looks like a blue stain on his cloak. That's supposed to be the lighting. Uh, if something is lit, it should be lighter than the thing that's being lit. That's kind of a laws of physics right there. And people just say, like, well, it's got to be blue, and his cloak has to be white. Well, guess what? As soon as you shine something, like shine a flashlight on your face, what happens? The one other side of your face goes, it's really dark, way darker than it should be. And it's sort of, I don't want to say unnatural shadows, but shadows where they normally aren't. So if you're going to have object source lighting, it means you've got to have darker colors, which is why on those pyros, the, the, the reds that are around that, that darker green or the lighter green, they have to be darker than they might normally be. Otherwise, you end up with basically dark green over a light red. And instead of object source lighting, it's object source shadow. You're, just, you're kind of like literally creating this, this jar of shadow in their hand. It has to be lighter. And the only way you can make something light, you can only go so light. Once you go to white, boom, you're done. But you can make the colors around it darker. So that's it's kind of a basic thing is if you want your object source lighting to glow, you're going to have to have darker colors around it. And you probably want to start out with that instead of painting two-thirds of that unit of pyromancers and say, you know what, now I'm going to throw some glow on them. You'll be so scared by then. You'll be so nervous that you're bound to probably have something go wrong because you're still worried about, if you're worried about screwing up, you're most likely going to screw up. If you start out, let's say you don't like it, now you just paint over it. You don't even do the object source lighting at all. That, that's kind of the benefit of starting out. You didn't waste a whole bunch of time while painting something and then maybe along the way. You can actually take these little flashlights. Uh, heck, even a laser pointer might do the trick. But I'll, there's actually these little tiny flashlights that cost pennies apiece, and they're usually red, blue, green. 
And if you want to, you can actually shine that little tiny flashlight on the miniature. It doesn't doesn't just tell you where the like the lights and shadows go, but now you can actually see what it looks like with green light. So that's really cool. And I think well, we we just got them on Amazon. They're like these little party favor flashlights, tiny little things, and they're they're usually red, green, blue, something like that, and some are white, but. Like those, those pyros, I think, in one of the videos, I actually found one that was green, and I shined it on the guys so that people could get an idea of what a actual green light would look like and how it casts a shadow. It, it's just like with the non-metallic, you got to remember to reflect everything that's around it. It's just like water is not blue. Water is blue because of the sky. It's reflecting the sky. Just like steel becomes blue because it's reflecting the sky, Object towards lighting, if you've got something green like the pyros, now we have kind of the ideal robes for them to be wearing, those red robes, because you cannot get any better contrast than a bright red and a bright green sitting right next to each other. It's kind of tailor-made for the object towards lighting. So when I saw those and I actually asked, asked Jim Ludwig, I said, so even the fire that they leave behind is still green, right? And he was, he was wondering why I kept asking him this over and over again. Because I've never seen the show or read the book, so I, I didn't know what the heck a pyromancer was until they were put in my hands. And I said, so this fire is green? And he says, yeah, for the tenth time, yes. And I said, all right. And that's why you see the, the green flame all over the bases, too, because it was another way to kind of illuminate other parts of the unit instead of just having them with these little bright green jars in their hands. Because they're, they're kind of supposed to be setting everything on fire, so why not have some of that everywhere else? Hopefully that kind of answers the object source lighting question without getting too too inside on that. No, I think I think any any ideas help. Um, you have a really nice way of, of breaking it down and uh, and making it. Um, making us understand how you get such a realistic look out of them. And it's because, well, uh, like you're saying, you look at some, some pictures and you look at some things in real life and you take a note of how the light reflects, or you take a note of how, how it happens in real life. And then you transfer that to your painting. So um, it's it's a really good tip. (laughs) It seems, it seems like a common sense answer, but no, that's, that's a really nice tip. So, uh, kind of to follow up on that and go a little bit deeper, do you recommend looking at some some real-life photography for people, maybe some old paintings uh, like canvas paintings from some really, really renowned artists to get some ideas of, of how some of that stuff works? Is that something that you've done that you would recommend? All the time. When I, I actually just today, I was looking up references because I have this dark sword angel that I'm going to do in a video and I was either going to do like a moonlit one or something that looked like it was maybe lit from the inside. So I basically went to Google and I typed in about six different searches. And I was, there were cosplayers on there, there was art, there was anime. And as I saw these, an idea started to form in my head about what to try just by looking at these different Google pictures. And they're actually going to be on the screen as I painted. When I was doing the Lannisters, the before I had other Lannisters to point to, I had just a picture of one of those cosplayers in shiny armor with a red tunic. 
And that, basically all of the Lannister stuff is based on that one cosplay picture that I found of some guy in shiny armor that looked very similar to what they were wearing and who also had a red tunic and red trousers because it's that. And he was standing in kind of a brightly lit bluish sky type thing. So I found the reference for the environment that I was looking for and the entire army was literally based off of that one reference picture. I mean, yeah, that's that's literally the the perfect explanation. I think that that one little tip alone there is going to help a lot of people conquer some of these things because I think I'm speaking for myself, but I think I think a lot of people are going to relate. They they get into this idea that well, I want to do this and I want to make it look realistic. How do I pull this off? And and I think what you're saying and looking at some real life pictures is really going to help them just kind of have something to reference and, and be able to pull that look off. And, uh, so, uh, like, uh, well, you look at the museum armor, well, or the lights, it's basically nailed to a wall with some kind of white around it. It's horrible. It's, it's not what armor would look like outdoors. When, thank goodness, these stupid Instagram pictures just randomly popped up in my feed because it was like somebody walking up to me, punching me in the face and say, hey, moron, look at this. Look at these actual real people in real forest or whatever, you can see the other guys reflected in their helmets. That's why on the Lannister Holberts, any, any, well, the same thing with the, uh, the crossbows. The, the guys next to them are reflected in those helmets. And it, it's very tiny. You can't really tell. But I saw that in those references. And I said, oh, well, A, it looks really cool. It just gives it that little extra touch of realism especially with Song of Ice and Fire Miniatures, which are darn near historical anyway. You know, the more like real life you can get those to be, the more convincing they are. Okay. I think uh, I think at this point, um, I don't think any of the other small council members have any direct questions right now because we're running out of time on the show, but I think we've left enough on the table that, um, James, if you're open to it, and we, we work our way back around to some more hobby segments, we might, uh, we might ask you to come back. Uh, you've been very insightful, and uh, it's been really helpful, so I, I know I would love to have you back, and we can kind of dive into more of some of your work and uh, keep on uh, encouraging these guys to try some new stuff. Uh, we can touch more into some of the basing. We can touch into, yeah, there's We've barely scratched the surface, so if you're open to it at a future date, we can bring you back and dive into it again. Basing and freehand, got to do it. <laughs> freehand. <laughs> any of you guys have any other questions for him? No, I think that uh, no, uh, covers I mean, most. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. I think I think it's good. I think it's a good place to leave it off. And um, like you said, we just you know we can do definitely do some more episodes and. Um, have James on, and, and I, I mean, I, I learned a lot today, and I would love to to continue this conversation, you know, in the future as well. So, absolutely, definitely. I've a lot. Uh, to anyone listening out there, uh, you know, join our Discord, and uh, if there's any like questions in particular you had, and maybe you can't make the live show to ask them, uh, just post them in uh, the section where you would uh, suggest like a uh, a topic for a show. And we'll write them down in the very next, uh, you know, hobby show that we uh, do with uh, James on. We'll 
we'll add that to some of the questions to ask. Um, that way, you know, you, you know, you'll get uh, an answer for that. Um, so, uh, James, is there any uh, any shout-outs you want to give? Any uh, like uh, recommendations? Any sites, uh, whether it be yours or someone else's, you uh, wanted to shout out there? Well, there's someone called Vince Venturella on YouTube, and I think he's called Hobby Cheating is the name of his videos. He and I are kind of like twins. He loves, he does armies. He just did a whole like 2,000 point stigma army or something like that in like a week. So he, he and I, we like to do the high level stuff, but we like armies because we play the game. So if you're looking for somebody who is like, sort of a weird, another twisted version of me, that's, uh, I would definitely recommend him. And he's posting stuff all the time, content. That, that's Hobby Cheating by Vince Venturella. That, that is definitely, a, I would say, a must-go-to spot. Awesome. How about uh, for yourself? Uh, where can people find uh, your uh, work at? So they can follow me on Instagram. That's Wapelius. W-A-P-P-E-L-L-I-O-U-S, same name. I just did like a three-hour live session last night. Uh, actually, I did a session on the Baratheons. They should go check that out before it goes away because it only lasts for 14 days. So I was painting the Stagnite, um, like another three-hour Twitch broadcast there. And now this is more permanent. I got my YouTube channel. This is James Waffle on YouTube. And there are dozens and dozens of tutorials there. And I just did another live session in the last 24 hours, actually about 18 hours ago. I think I was done with it. So uh, I'm always doing live sessions, probably twice a week uh, there. And then there's other just sort of, I did the last video that was posted. It was like a weathering video using weathering powders and liquid pigment fixture, using that kind of like washes and stuff. So there's, there's always something on there, uh, terrain stuff. And the, there's my blog, too. Guess what? It's at Wapelius. Thousand articles on there. And the vast majority of those are step-by-step articles. How to do this, how to do that. You want to see my armies? That's the place to go. You want to see Tomb Kings? I've got 120 posts on Tomb Kings. You want to see Lizardman? There's another 100-something posts there. You want to see my display boards, like the three-and-a-half-foot-tall cathedral that I made for my sisters of battle? That is also on the blog. Awesome. Just yeah, everyone definitely uh, check all that stuff out. I know I definitely will be checking out at least the YouTube channel. Um, so I'm always on YouTube uh, checking that type of stuff out. So, um, But, yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I wanted to close out, uh, or before we do our closing here, I wanted to do another shout-out for the Tabletop Simulator. And uh, we have a lot of stuff in the works to kind of make it more of a mainstream thing, uh, especially right now. A lot of people can't really, you know, get a lot of live games in uh, with a lot of the hobby stores, you know, being closed down uh, at the moment. Um, Brett uh, and Chris, do you guys want to jump in there and let people know what's uh, what's going on on that front? Um, sure. So, uh, Carlo from a Song of Ice and Fire com, as well as Northern Realms Gaming, have uh, collaborated to put together an online tournament. It is 64 players. It's going to be here in the next few weeks. Um, a lot of those games will be live streamed or 
uh, created as videos by some of the other content, excuse me, content creators such as Blitz Mini, um, Mythico Studios, and um, Tabletop Warden, just to name a few. Some of those guys are represented in the tournament, so you'll be able to catch some of those games um, from Tabletop Simulator streamed either live or you can catch them when they post the videos. Uh, it is a 64-man, six-round event, and uh, Carlo and Northern Realms Gaming have managed to put together uh, $500 worth of prize support um, for this event. It's the very first massive online event that's been open to the public. Uh, it's actually full, but there is a wait list. So if you miss the signups, uh, visit the main A Song of Ice and Fire page and scroll down until you see the post from Carlos and sign up, and you'll be added to the wait list. Um, yeah, it's just going to be it's going to be really fun, and we're hoping that uh, that after. Northern Realms and Carlo have put this one together. We're hoping that we can get some collaboration with some of the other content creators and uh, make this a thing because, as I've mentioned before, Tabletop Simulator is our only way to go right now because of social distancing. But even after some of this ends, it'll be really nice to be able to kind of intermingle the metas, you know, being able to play guys from Europe, guys from Europe being able to play us. I know Ben is from Singapore, but he's also been to Australia to play some of the guys that can't afford or don't have the time to travel around the world and play these players, you can sit on an afternoon on the weekend and play some of these guys that you would just love to play, but it wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So, yeah, we're hoping to expand that to, to, to more events done digitally besides this one. So it should be a lot of fun. But uh, big props to Carlo and uh, Northern Realms Gaming for coming up with this idea and putting it together. And uh, hopefully soon it will kind of piggyback into more and more events. Yeah, and uh, for those that aren't really familiar with it yet, uh, you know, you can find Tabletop Simulator, the main uh, uh, program uh, on Steam, uh, that you have to purchase it. I think it's about 20 bucks or so. It's not too much. And then the uh, patch for Ice and Fire, the game, there is one on there on the workshop, but uh, from my understanding, it only has, has most of what you need, but not all of it. Uh, if you go on the Tabletop Simulator Ice and Fire uh, Discord, uh, they have a patch there that will give you everything that's up to date. Uh, is that correct, uh, Brett? Yes. And if not, I'm going to do one more shout-out, sorry. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Tabletop Simulator and you don't know where to start, uh, Carl from Roll 'Em If You Got 'Em, uh, Wildcard Carl, he has done a series of tutorials on how to get started and getting more comfortable with navigating through that system. Uh, Carl is also on Discord, and he can be uh, found on the main A Song of Ice and Fire page. He's a really good guy. He'll be more than happy to help you get started and uh, get you set up with that uh, if you are unable to find it. So it's a uh, Carl Black, a.k.a. Wildcard Carl. Uh, Carl from Roland, if you got him. So any help, there's, I mean, you can always ask things on the, the Big Song of Ice and Fire, uh, Big Song of Ice and Fire page. Um, all, everybody there is great about helping. So if you don't know where to go, just ask on there and somebody will point you in the right direction. Yep, and I just, uh, um, what was it, last week uh, I downloaded everything and 
started playing around with it. It takes a little getting used to for, you know, at least for me and I know a couple other people, others might not have uh, much trouble with it. But once you kind of get the hang of it, uh, after just like a couple hours of messing around with it, uh, it's, you know, really well done. And uh, we have a lot of people behind the scenes uh, working pretty much every day to make it better. So uh, definitely check it out. And, you know, like Brett was saying, this is, you know, the perfect thing to kind of scratch that itch and, it's, you know, keep things going. Uh, and as Brett also mentioned, uh, it's a 64-person uh, event, and it's full. So we got at least 64 people, if not, you know, however many people on the waiting list. So there's definitely a lot of, you know, popularity uh, rolling in. And, uh, you know, I would highly suggest at least trying it out, if anything, um, I think uh, Steam has, a, like, a return policy, too. If, like, you get it and you really absolutely don't like it, I think it's based on, like, number of hours that you've played uh, on the game. So as long as you haven't played so many hours, I think you get, like, a free refund or something. Yeah, I, th- I, so, think, it's, uh, uh, definitely... I think it's two hours, by the way. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of iffy because, uh, you know, playing around on it might take, you know, an hour or so. Uh, but definitely give it a shot. Um, I, you know, it took me about an hour and a half to kind of get the hang of things, but once I did, I could definitely see how, you know, it, it would be a lot of fun. And I know uh, Chris and Brett, you guys have played uh, a handful or more of games, right? I played with Brett, yeah. Yep. So it's, it's definitely uh, something yeah. to try out. Oh, go ahead, Britt. Uh, I was just saying I, I did that uh, on-the-table gaming content creator tournament. That was three games. I've probably played a nine or ten total. Awesome. So, yeah, just want to close with that. You know, definitely check it out. Uh, so, again, thank you, James, for coming on. Uh, everyone definitely check out his content and all the other, uh, you know, amazing uh content creators out there. Another last uh, shout out is to remember to, in these times to, you know, try to support your local game shops. Uh, Some, you know, some might be doing better than others, but, you know, you never know. Some of them might be struggling right now. Uh, So, you know, call them up, message them on Facebook, uh, whatever you need to do, and maybe see what you can do to help out if you're in the position to do so. Um, Obviously, if, you know, depending on your situation, if you're not really in that position, uh, you know, just maybe lend them some support. Ask them maybe if uh, sharing out, you know, some uh, some of their, like, contact info somewhere might help them. Uh, just anything you can do, even if you can't help them financially at the moment, because, uh, you know, our local game shops is what kind of keeps our hobby alive. Um, you know, buying online is awesome, but uh, you know, online isn't what provides us with the places to play. Playing in your basement is awesome, but usually it doesn't promote, like, meeting new people uh, in the sense, I guess not necessarily meeting new people, but getting new people in the hobby. Um, just kind of meeting strangers at uh, your local game shop is, a, you know, where you're going to get, like, a lot of your newer players and get people into the game. So definitely want to keep your local game stores alive. Um, so just uh, see what you can do to kind of help them out, you know, whether or not it's just by sharing out their uh, their store or, uh, 
you know, letting people know that they might still be doing like deliveries or curbside pickup. Um, so, uh, this is kind of closing it out. Uh, don't forget uh, to like and share out the page. Uh, we're getting pretty close to the 500 likes mark uh, to give out a starter half uh, and some unit boxes. Um, so definitely do that because, uh, you know, for us it's just product that's kind of sitting here. We definitely want to give it away. Uh, so just, uh, you know, keep that in mind. Um, just keep sharing it out. And, you know, we have tons of people uh, in the Ice and Fire community. Uh, and surprisingly, you know, some of them just have not heard of us yet. So just keep sharing the show out, and eventually, you know, everyone will have uh, heard of us. Uh, join our Discord. Uh, you know, give us some suggestions. Just kind of chat. You can chat with us, um, and you know, just kind of get some ideas out there for some shows. Uh, and yeah, just uh, thank you guys uh, for you know listening and. Thank you to my co-hosts uh, who are on tonight, and thank you again, James, for coming on. It was definitely awesome having, you know, someone uh, of your talent uh, to kind of weigh in on the hobby aspect. Um, and uh, thank you guys for, you know, listening in. This is the Small Council, and it is dismissed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.